Emmanuel Sias, Thomas Piketty, and Gabriel Zuckman. People talk about them on podcasts all the time. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, with me in the studio is Ezra Klein. And no one else. No one else. It it's is weird. an empty an empty room going mano a mano. Uh, Sarah, what did she do? Did she go on vacation? I don't know. It's August. She's probably on vacation. It's terrible. I'm in her seat Everybody's so we can gone. face each we, other, and changed, it's weird. We've changed the, the seating it's format. It's an awkward weeds. And we're also... Going to tweak the format of the show a little bit. Yeah. So there, there are these two papers that came out that, that I think are a really good way of thinking about the, the broader economy. Now, we're in a moment where a lot of economic indicators actually look pretty good. So the, the Dow is at 22,000. It's the highest number the Dow's ever been at. Donald Trump has been very excited about that since the media isn't reporting it. Um, I'm in the media. We have reported that. But it's a, it's a high number for the Dow. Uh, unemployment is down to 4.3%, something in that neighborhood. Yeah, low. Uh, low. Low. We had good GDP numbers last quarter. Quarter. Last year was a little bit more modest in GDP, but good GDP numbers last quarter. Now, this is not that different from the 2016 economy, which also was beginning to, to push some of these records, get down to low unemployment. Donald Trump thought that economy was bad, and now he's really flipped on it. But I think that if you look at the, the broader research about the economy, and pretty some of the research that's come out in the last couple of months, you see why there is so much anger about an economy where a lot of the macro-level numbers are not that bad. I, I think that, to me, has been the great mystery of all this. When you look at something like 2016, you see the stock market hitting new highs. You see unemployment down beneath 5%. You see a very, very strong year in median wage growth, which pe- which had been lagging, or at least 2015 was a very strong yeah. year in median wage growth. We expect 2016 probably was, too. I'm not sure we have the census numbers on that yet. And yet, people are unhappy about the economy. Um, you know, right-track, wrong-track numbers are low. You saw huge surges for candidates who uh, had a very aggressive critique of the economy. And we we have two papers here this week that I think help explain why and really paint a, a, a grim picture. So I'm going to let you you make the choice here. Do you want to start with market concentration or do you want to start with the rich people are stealing all the money? Uh, well, let's start with, with the inequality because right. I think the market concentration helps explain, at least it's, a, it's an effort to help explain the, the basic data from the inequality paper. Okay, so the inequality paper. This is a paper by superstar, world-beating economist Thomas Piketty, Emmanuel Saez, and, and Gabriel Zucman. You have heard of them. You've heard of Piketty's book. Um, probably have not read it, but but have heard of it like, like most of us. Uh, and what they did was they created a paper that is answering one of the central critiques of their previous work. They've been using certain kinds of data to estimate how income in America is distributed. And what they found in that data, as we've all heard, is that it is distributed extremely, extremely unequally. The top 1% have made these huge, huge gains in the income distribution. Now, there's been a critique coming from conservatives for a while now that the problem with the kind of data they're using is that it doesn't take into account government transfer programs, so it doesn't take into account things like Medicaid and the earned income tax credit, that it doesn't take into account changes in household formation or changes in the age distribution. So, for instance, we have more single-parent households or single households than we did 40 years ago. Um, more w- women are in the workforce. The workforce is getting older. There are all these things happening. And it's been a critique made by, by folks like Scott Winship, but many others, that this is wrong. That This idea that the bottom 50% are not getting any of the gains of the economy is wrong. 
So basically what, what Saez, uh Emmanuel and Zuckman, I'm sorry, Saez, Piketty, and Zuckman did here was they began to aggregate more kinds of data into their project. Uh, and I'm not going to try to go into the weeds of this because I will probably get it wrong. It's too many weeds even for me. But what they're doing now is pulling together data that shows both income distribution, shows government transfers, is able to look at things like household formation. And it looks really, really, really bad. When you go into that data, it is fucking grim. So data show that the bottom half of the income distribution has completely, completely been shut off from economic growth since the 1970s. I'm quoting them now. From 1980 to 2014, the average national income per adult, per adult, grew by 61% in the U.S. So that's your headline number. Average national income per adult grew by 61%. But the average pre-tax income of the bottom 50% of individual income earners stagnated at about $16,000 per adult after adjusting for inflation. The income at the top, uh, for the top 1%, went up by 205%. So if you're in the bottom 50% of the income distribution, you did not really see a raise from 1980 to 2014. We're talking here pre-tax income. If you're in the top 1%, your income went up by 205%. If you're in the top 0.001%, it's by 636%. But okay, what, what about government, right? We do all this taxing. We have all these government programs. What happened when you put, in the, the, when you put the government in here? So this changes it a little bit, but but it's not by much. The average post-tax income of the bottom 50% of adults, so now post-tax, now it includes government transfers, increased by only 21% between 1980 and 2014, much less than average national income. So again, average national income is around 60% per adult. When you include all that progressive taxing and spending we do, the bottom 50% only sees a 21% raise. And something that, that the authors of this note, a lot of that transfer spending is not cash. It's Medicaid, it's Medicare, it's all these different things people get, but they get them in order to be able to keep up with certain kinds of costs. It's not the same as having money to buy your kids the things they want or to buy yourself the things you want. It's also interesting that this is, this is directly contrary to sort of the, the promise of the, the Reagan revolution, yeah. right? Like the, the concept of like the rightward turn in American political economy was that we were going to maybe care less about inequality, get big government out of the way, and the growth that would unleash would lead everybody's income to go up by so much that we wouldn't care. And and what's happened is like the opposite of that on a whole number of levels. Like inequality has gone up and it's gone on enough that the rich are gaining income at a faster pace than they used to. But overall growth is slower. And there has been some income growth for people in the bottom 50%, but that's come exclusively because of the growth of government transfer programs. Right. Right. So it's like it's like doubly. The, the, the rising a, tide has not lifted all boats. What has lifted boats to the extent that they've been lifted at all is the growth of the welfare state. Yeah, there's a great line from, from Thomas Edsel, who writes at the New York Times. He, he writes, so the argument of the right has to be cash market income of the bottom 99% of adults has stagnated, but the bottom 99% get much more expensive private and government-provided healthcare benefits, some more government transfers, and they have fewer kids. This does not seem like a great situation, especially from a conservative point of view. Right, the, the kids thing also, this comes up all the time, and I, I, I just... I have a huge disagreement with conservatives about this. Like, they often want to say, well, you should adjust people's incomes for declining household size, where they're making the point that 
Well, okay, $50,000 to support one kid is a lot easier than $50,000 to support three kids, which is obviously is true. Uh, But to then just, like, adjust the missing children away seems to me to be, like, a huge conceptual error. Like, one reason why people have smaller families is that children are so expensive. So to say, like, oh, no, 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 you're not really worse off um, because you just, like— didn't have as many children as you might have had if your income was higher or housing was more affordable or daycare was more affordable is extremely confused. And and it seems like something coming out of a, like, 1970s left-wing, like, population bomb mindset rather rather than an actual conservative mindset, right? You would say that, like, in the good life, people would be earning plenty of money and they would be having, you know, not necessarily giant families, but they would not be feeling— economically constrained in their ability to have second and third children. Leaving the house can turn into a a kind of scavenger hunt. Uh, If you're the parent of a a toddler like I am, you you really see that that's true. There's a ton of stuff that you need, and it's it's hard to keep track of all of it. A thing that I've been using for a while to to help me, uh, you know, keep my stuff and and not be be constantly losing it is Tracker. Tracker's been going at this eight years. Uh, When they released their first product, it it really changed everything. But they're out with a new one, the Tracker Pixel, that's going to really sort of be way more convenient and transform your experience. Uh, with Tracker Pixel, you'll never worry about losing your things again. Uh, what it is, is it's it's the lightest Bluetooth tracking device on the market. You place a Tracker Pixel on whatever you tend to lose, uh, keys, wallets, uh, even your cat. It's small enough to fit anywhere. So you can put it on all your different kind of like bags, different uh, equipment that you need. Uh, it's, it's really small. It's really light. It's super convenient to use. Uh, when you misplace an item that has a Tracker Pixel attached, use your smartphone and a 90 decibel alert will help you find it in seconds. It's got powerful LED lights so you can find things in the dark. And if you lose your phone, you press the button on a tracker pixel and your phone rings, even if it's on silent. It's really great. And they've got a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you've got nothing to lose. Uh, So so you want to check this out. You want to try it. You want to improve your life. Uh, You go to thetracker.com. It's the T-R-A-C-K-R.com and enter promo code WEEDS to get 20% off any order. That's thetracker.com, promo code WEEDS for 20% off. Thetracker.com, promo code One other thing this paper does, which I thought was really interesting, is sometimes you hear an argument that, well, this is just this modern economy. It's globalized. There's so much technology. It has these superstar effects. This is going to be happening everywhere. There's not a lot any one country can do to to stop it. And there, Saez and Piketty and and Zuckman are trying to create this kind of measure across a lot of economies. But one of the other ones they began with is France, because two of these three economists are from France. And there, the story is really, really different, actually. In France, the bottom 50% of real inflation-adjusted pre-tax incomes grew by 32% from 1980 to 2014. So in America, the bottom 50% of pre-tax stagnated. In France, it grew by 32%, which was approximately the same rate as national income per adult. So France has had slower growth, but if you're in the bottom 50%, you've gotten a lot more of it. Um, So one thing this leads to is while the bottom 50% of incomes were 11% lower in France than in the U.S. in 1980, they are now 16% higher. So while France is still poorer than America, including on a per-person basis, uh, you are now better off in the bottom 50% of France than you are in the bottom 50% of America. That feels pretty damning to me. 
Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think a lot of Americans have not. Uh, you know, France. They these guys are French, uh, so they pull that example out. I think to troll us. Um, but I, I mean, the the flip side is that there's also an- it might just be very. E- I mean, they probably it's very easy for them to read that data. <laughs> yes, they're, they're very familiar with the French tax data. As best we can tell, though, France is not is neither the richest nor the most egalitarian right. European country. Um, and, and that there's actually a, a large set of Northern European countries, um, uh, Netherlands, Denmark, uh, Norway, uh, probably Ireland, uh, possibly Belgium, most clearly, where living standards for the bottom half of, of Americans have, have slipped. And then, you know, if you account for um, leisure time, you know, these things can start to take on a, a quite dark hue. Um, Americans uh, have many fewer vacation days than French people, which is a plausible social trade-off, but you would expect Americans to have a higher material living standard than people who get two months off a year. Um, that that would be the trade-off, right? And, and we are uh, really not, not getting it, particularly for people at the bottom end. So, so there's one more just data point I want to pull out from this paper, because I, I really want to stress, like, this data is it's bad. It's really bad. Um, and I think we should be very upset about it. And, and at this point, it's answering a lot of the main criticisms that have been lobbed at it. So they write, because the pre-tax incomes of the bottom 50% stagnated while average national income per adult group, the share of national income earned by the bottom 50% collapsed. So in 1980, the bottom 50% of Americans, they made about 20% of national income. By 2014, that had fallen to 12.5%. So for every dollar made in America, the bottom 50% used to get 20 cents, and in 2014, they got 12.5 cents. Over the exact same period, the top 1% of that dollar, they started by getting 10.7%, and now they get 20.2%. So one thing they note is that the bottom 50% and the top 1% have switched their income shares almost exactly. And so you'll, you'll sometimes get into this argument. I've been in this argument and, and have you know, often wondered about it. Is what we're seeing um, the rich taking money from the poor, right, in, in some broad way? Because obviously the economy is not fixed. It's possible that the rich could increase their share of the, of the national economy, but still everybody would be getting really robust raises. I actually think that is like the Reagan vision, right? right? The economy will be growing. Everybody's doing great. But yeah, maybe the rich are going to accelerate faster. But because they're driving so much economic growth, the bottom 50 percent are going to be getting these huge raises bigger than they would otherwise be getting. In China, for example, over this same time period, inequality has exploded. Right. But it's also obvious that the vast majority of Chinese people are better off than they were before. That's like that was what we were promised was a was a China-like expansion. So China, I think, is almost like the Reagan example. Then France is like the example that conservatives have argued like you shouldn't have slower growth, but the, the bottom 50% get more of it. And America has become this sort of, I mean, depending on how you look at it, but for how I look at it, worst of both worlds, where you're getting this explosion in inequality, but you're really not getting any compensation down down at the bottom 50%. So this is bad. This is a paper saying the headline numbers are real. You're getting a lot of growth. You're seeing, you know, the the economy grow. You're seeing the economy grow faster than it has grown in other countries, seeing it grow faster per person than it has grown in other countries. But that growth is being entirely eaten up by the top 1%, and not just eaten up, but more than eaten up, right? They are expanding their share extremely fast of, of, of the income distribution. 
this is the American economy right now. It's an economy that grows, that is able to create jobs, is able to create income, that is able to innovate tremendously, but that most of the people in it are sharing very little of it. And also that our tax and transfer system is not anywhere near robust enough to make up for. Make your next move with a beautiful website from Squarespace. It's 2017, and there are still a lot of bad websites out there. And there's still a lot of companies and small projects that don't even have any website at all because you're, you, people are afraid of the work that's going to be involved or, or they don't want to keep it updated. And Squarespace can really fix this problem. It is a dead simple design and support tool. Uh, you go, they have these beautiful templates that are designed by professionals. So you pick one that you like as a sort of starting point. And then, you know, you might worry, well, you know, I'm going to have this super generic thing. And you won't. First, because they have a ton of templates out there. And second, because it's really easy to modify. It's a simple what you see is what you get kind of thing. You drag, you drop, you resize, you click, you see, you click what you like, you take it. Plus, they have award-winning 24-7 customer support. And there's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. It's a seamless platform that takes care of everything. And it can make any kind of website. It's used by a huge range of creatives, people, and businesses, musicians, designers, artists, restaurants, and more. They even have a unique domain experience that's fully transparent and simple to set up. Uh, so just go over to squarespace.com, check it out. You can play around with it. And if you decide that you like what you're seeing, use offer code WEEDS to get 10% off your first purchase of a website and a domain there. Squarespace. Make your next move with beautiful website. I think it's it's interesting to look at this other new paper, which looks at a sort of a possible driver of, of these kind of trends. And, and this is this is done by uh, two two guys, uh, Jan de Loker and Jan Ekhout. I think are their names. Uh, they they seem to be Dutch uh, or, or possibly Flemish. Um, and and so they are taking a sort of different and I think more uh, interesting look at the idea of market concentration and market power, which people have been talking about a lot over the past few months, a uh, year in the United States, but uh, often in a in a way that feels a little hand-wavy to me. Um, and they go into a sort of big, not entirely comprehensive, but, but really large data set of financial information from publicly traded American companies. And they look at what they're calling markups. And this is basically, in, in their definition of a markup, it's how much does something cost versus what is the marginal cost to the company of producing another one of them, right? So, you know, you go to McDonald's and a Big Mac costs, uh, you know, whatever it costs, uh, four bucks or, or something. And then there's the question of, well, on the margin, what does it cost McDonald's to assemble an additional Big Mac? Um, that's not how uh, people who operate businesses think about their markups, which I, I think it's important to, to put a pin in that. But they call that, they call the difference between the price and the marginal cost a markup. Um, because in economic theory, in a fully competitive, totally idealized, frictionless market, the uh, cost of something should be equal to the marginal cost of producing it. And, and we have this on the uh, internet uh, content game that uh, Ezra and I participate in. Right. The, the marginal cost of distributing an extra 
page view to like you, the audience, is zero. And consequently, the vast majority of websites are free. Uh, whereas in print, it costs something to deliver the newspapers to people. So you charged a little for a newspaper, uh, you, even though it was it was pretty cheap. Um, so they are showing that for decades, from 1950 to 1980 or so, the average markups kind of meandered up for a little while and then down. But basically ended up exactly where they started, and there were no big changes. Uh, But since 1980, they've been going up. Uh, They've been sort of drifting up and then spiking during each recession, and then drifting and then spiking and drifting and spiking. Um, So they say that in 1980, the average markup was 18% of, of marginal cost, and it's 67% now. And, and they say that you find this in essentially all industries, um, that it is not just like a handful of really big companies, that in some ways uh, small companies see the same thing, but that's because of the the composition uh, across all the different sorts of, of industries that, that exist. Can, can we hold States? here? Because this yeah. is a part of the paper that I kept reading over. And having a little trouble, like, coming up with a vivid example for myself. So they're saying that – I think when we think of concentration, we're thinking of the biggest companies. Right. They're saying the markups are not concentrated in the, like, literal biggest companies. Right. But they're concentrated in mid-sized companies, though bigger companies within an individual industry. Yeah. It's it- like, what – Give me an example, like, what you think is the... Right, so there's, like, a few levels of this analysis. You might at first say, like, aha, like, there's increasing market power. So that means that, like, all of the money is going to the biggest companies, like Exxon. Uh, But you look at the data, and that's not really true. Uh, It's happening at small companies as as well as big companies. But then they say, okay, well, you got to look at industries, right? So... All oil companies are big companies, right? There's no, like, mom-and-pop, like... You know, it doesn't it doesn't work like that. Um, whereas you look at like the restaurant industry, and restaurant companies tend to be pretty small, right? In the scheme of things, like even uh, TGI Fridays is like not that big of a company in the global view of things, but it's a big company for a restaurant company. And so they're saying that if you look at the food service industry, the rise in markups is concentrated in the bigger food service companies, even though even the biggest food service companies tend to be modest compared to the biggest oil companies and and software companies. Um, And, you know, in some industries, right, if you think about, like, um, uh, things related to construction, uh, the companies are all really small, right, compared to uh, even food service, right? Like, there's no chain of plumbers, right? These are all really small businesses. Uh, But they're showing that, you know, within specific industry subsectors, the bigger companies tend to be getting the larger markups. Uh, But they are showing that this is happening across all industries, which I I do think is important uh, when it comes into how do we want to interpret this this sort of data. Um, I've seen a couple critiques of this paper, Uh, one from, from the Adam Smith Institute, that I think is just wrong. Um, they they try to say in this Adam Smith paper, oh, well, it's all, it's biased by survivorship because obviously companies that, that are able to s- charge higher prices will, will live longer. Uh, but there's a change in trajectory, right? From 1950 to 1980, it's not going up. And then from 1980 to 2014, it is going up. So you would need some problem with the data that would explain that inflection point, and, and they don't have that. Now, Tyler Cohen writes 
I think correctly, that they sort of like throw around the English language word, like market power. And the way I would put it is like, you could imagine reading this paper in the voices of two different politicians, right? Elizabeth Warren is going to say, aha, we have a paper which shows that the biggest players in each industry are amassing more and more market power due to lax government regulation. They're jacking up prices, putting profits ahead of people. It's driving wages down and increasing disparities of wealth and income. Uh, You could also imagine Marco Rubio reading this paper and saying, What we're seeing is that big government and red tape is increasing fixed costs for companies all across the board. It's getting harder and harder to enter a new business, to form a new startup, and it's coddling, you know, a handful of incumbent industries, decreasing opportunity and decreasing growth across the board. Um, Those two lines are both, I think, entirely consistent with the actual research finding here, there's no way in this data to distinguish between a uh, classical monopolization scenario in which somehow I have gobbled up all my competitors and I'm just like jacking prices up to screw consumers and a question of like, if you make it really hard to get building permits, then the cost of operating a restaurant becomes mostly the fixed cost of getting your building, and the marginal food and labor costs become less and less significant. So your markups, as they measure them, will go up and up. And you'll, in both cases, have the same kind of like bad outcome, but you'd be looking at a pretty different policy fix, depending on which of those you think is happening, or both. Right. I think something that's interesting about this paper, or two things that are interesting about this paper. One is that it is a paper that is not actually measuring market power. It's a paper measuring this definition of markups. There's no measure in here of industry concentration. There's no measure here of, you know, what happens in different industries with more concentration. What they've basically done is take an outcome they think would come from firms having more market power. They find that outcome is happening across the economy in all kinds of different industries. And they're saying, well, that clearly shows that somehow or another these firms are developing more market power. Whether it's by consolidation, concentration, I think we have reason to believe it is, but the authors cannot go there. This paper is not a measure of that. This paper is just a measure of whether or not businesses now have the power to charge higher prices than what they are um, paying to produce their products. Like, that is what the paper shows. The other thing that's interesting about this paper, though, and it goes to your point about the, the two political ways to read it, the second half of this paper is a bunch of math showing that this outcome is consistent with like every single problem in the economy that you could possibly imagine. They literally write that uh, market power can be behind, quote, declining labor share, uh, which is how much of the money in the economy goes to, to labor, declining wages, declining labor force participation, labor market, the slowdown in labor market dynamism, decreased job mobility, and lower migration rates. So like that is a lot of things you are explaining. Yes. I was not really able to evaluate how persuasive the explanation that this is behind every one of those things was. Um, they had some interesting graphs showing that there there were places where like the charts really seemed to track each other of like this problem and also uh, markups. But what I think they are showing here is that I'm not sure they are proving that all this is coming from markups. What they're showing is that 
These are all stories, these things we're worried about in the economy that are consistent with a rise in market power. And so if you're um, thinking about how much of a problem corporate power is and market concentration and other things that you think lead to more corporate power, how much of a problem you think it is for the economy, I think this paper is very strong evidence that you're on to something, that the causal mechanism you're positing for what's gone wrong in the economy is at least a plausibly true causal mechanism. Because I, I do think there's been a long strain of argument, um, and, and we've had it even on the show, I think, saying that, well, you know, big companies, they're, they're more efficient, they bring down prices. This is a lot of the Reagan-era antitrust stuff, which, and I'll note, this, these, these numbers go way up in the 80s. So it's around the time that an, the new antitrust uh, thinking begins to come into vogue. Um, but there's been this long-time argument. I mean, you see it in some of the big players like Amazon, right, who people are like, they're going to hold down prices, they're going to increase labor market dynamism. And, and what this paper is saying is, actually, across an economy, if you're seeing markups all across the board, you're looking at a situation consistent with the very things you're worried about, not inconsistent with them. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I would say is, you know, I, I was trying to present like two different modes of like partisan political analysis of this. And, and I think there's good reason to believe that both of them are true and that, that it's important to keep both of them in our heads. I think in the final sort of two years of the Obama administration, uh, Jason Furman and the Council of Economic Advisors did a, did a series of papers that I think you could think of as all looking at different pieces of this same uh, markups issue that, that this research demonstrates. And, you know, they did one on the growth of licensing requirements to, to practice a trade, right? There's been a, a huge increase in the number of things that you need to do, sort of semi-arbitrary uh, jumping through through hoops to be able to cut hair or fix locks or, or do various things like that. Uh, there's been a huge increase in the burdensomeness of zoning regulations and the difficulty of creating new houses in the most expensive areas. Uh, there has also been a uh, declining vigorousness of merger enforcement and a tendency for companies to be allowed to combine. And, and we've seen research showing that mergers have uh, led to a lot of price increases uh, wh where they've happened. And so uh, there's been a tendency, though, I feel like in the um, think tank food fight world to posit these explanations as competing accounts of the declining dynamism of the American economy. Uh, so people who are like really gung-ho about more merger enforcement or, uh, you know, some kind of breakup Google scheme are trying to downplay um, some of the, the zoning and, and licensing type research and vice versa. What's most important, I think, about this is that it does show that the increasing markups exist in all industries, um, essentially. And it is simply not plausible to believe that uh, inadequate merger enforcement is what's responsible for everything all the way down into a lot of sectors of the economy that are clearly not dominated by a handful of national chains. Like, um, I, I have... I eat in restaurants. Um, that is not how the restaurant economy works. On the flip side, it's clearly not the case that occupational licensing is driving um, high markups in the software industry where they don't have any occupational licensing. And it clearly is dominated by a handful of, of really big firms. Uh, we are doing— Although you could argue that non-competes have kept it very concentrated in California. 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's things you you could say, but I mean, it, it, there's clearly some of this happening on both sides. I, and I thought uh, T- Tyler Cohen's piece on this, I, I thought, was a, a little bit odd. I mean, he seemed to be throwing up a kind of argument from anecdotes, which is that, like, ask anyone and they'll tell you that, like, the economy is more competitive than it ever has been before, uh, which is true. That is what everybody says. Uh, But also everybody says that people change jobs more often than they used to and that people move more than they used to and that technology is displacing workers at a faster pace than it used to. And, And none of that is true. He's written several good books about how none of that is true. Um... And given that none of that is true, right? Like, people are moving less. People are changing jobs less. The economy is growing less overall. Something like what they are saying about a decline in the volume of competition also has to be true. It's it's just not possible for the economy to be in this, like, frenetic pace of competition that businessmen perceive themselves to be in, but actually nobody's investing, nobody's upgrading capital equipment, nobody is moving, right? Because, like, if you were competing as vigorously as you thought you were, you would, some of that stuff would be happening. And, like, it isn't. Like, the pace of change is slowing, even though people don't seem to perceive it that way. You're busy, I'm busy, everybody's busy these days. At the same time, we all have little snatches of time here and there. And a lot of us, if we're totally honest with ourselves, are kind of wasting that time fiddling with our phones. Uh, So what if you could use it instead to really accomplish something and learn? Uh, That's what the Blinkist app is about. They've got over 2,000 of the best-selling nonfiction books transformed into powerful packs that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. It's like a sort of cheat sheet for for, for human knowledge. Uh, If you listen to this podcast, you know, I'm sure you want to know things. Um, and with Blinkist, you can really gain nonfiction knowledge in the blink of an eye. Uh, Forbes, BuzzFeed, New York Times, Lifehacker are all talking about Blinkist. They were chosen to Apple and Google's best of selection for two years. The app has over one million users. Blinkist is a special offer just for our audience. You go to Blinkist.com slash weeds to start your free trial. Get three months off your yearly plan when you go today. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash weeds to start your free trial or get three months off our yearly plan. Check out Blinkist.com slash weeds and you're going to like it. If you've ever wanted to see our show in person, we've got some great news for you. The show is coming to the Now Hear This podcast festival in New York City, September 8th through 10th. It's a great value. One ticket gets you access to all 25 live shows throughout the weekend. Go to nowhearthisfest.com to get your tickets. That's nowhearthisfest.com. I think this is a good point to try to merge these two papers a bit. What we're what we're seeing painted here is a picture of an economy that, on the one hand, all of the income gains are are being pulled in by the by the rich. Basically, an economy where power, economic power, is being exerted much more so by the rich. They are they are being able to increase their markup between what they produce and how much money they get for it. And then on the business side, you're seeing the same thing. The power is being held uh, by corporations by somewhat bigger ones in every industry, that they are being able to increase the amount they take home based on what they produce, and that in both cases, it does not appear to be be doing the economy much good. And, and I do think that this is a place where we are so focused on what the Trump administration is doing that I think it is sometimes hard to keep an eye on what they are not doing. There is no economic theory 
currently animating the Trump administration and, and their policies, except for a generalized orientation towards deregulation. They don't have a chief economist, like the, the CEA does not have a, a chief economist appointed to it. They are not running any kind of overall theory. I mean, towards the end of the Obama administration, as you know, there was something interesting beginning to happen their CEA with Jason Furman around trying to look at some of this monopolistic stuff and, and trying to think about how to do it. They began talking about occupational licensing and 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 trying to develop again like okay, we did all this stimulus and, and financial rescue things that clearly didn't fix the economy, even if it, it averted a, a worse catastrophe. What do we have to do next? And and something I do think is a pity um, right now and, and a failure is that there is no work in any serious way happening in the Trump administration to diagnose the problems that in theory he ran on and come up with something to do about them. They want to do tax reform, but they do not know what kind or really why. They want to deregulate because like their friends don't like regulations. But again, it's not a, a targeted kind of approach. And I just this is bad. Like the, these these papers are saying there's something deeply fundamentally wrong in the American economy, even if the economy as a whole is still growing okay and still creating jobs and still even creating income. And I am not sure that there that I, I think we are just in a period in the Trump administration of drift on this. Um, I think you could say that particularly for back half Obama when they did not have really the power to pass much. But this is not. These are real problems, and we are not doing anything about well, them. Right. I mean, under, under Obama, I think we ended up in the second term in a substantive drift. Uh, but there was a intellectually exciting yeah. time um, when they were they were trying to trying to work something out. Uh, to paint an even darker portrait, Donald Trump's view of things is that you should ask rich businessmen about the economy and that Donald Trump himself could run the economy because he himself is a rich businessman. And there's a fair amount of evidence uh, from what I've talked to people, um, you know, on the Democratic side who did focus groups and and looked at things that that this is very persuasive to a lot of sort of normal people that they think of – business owners and managers as a kind of economy experts who, if they twilted their thinking a little bit, you know, would would know how to get it done. But if what we're looking at is a problem of an economy that has become systematically insufficiently competitive, right, calling up the CEOs of the 12 biggest technology companies in America and asking them what can... Apple, Google, Facebook, IBM, Microsoft, Amazon all agree on as an agenda. Like, they're going to agree on an agenda that makes it harder for new companies to compete with them and that disincentivizes them to even compete with each other, right? I mean, they're obviously not going to sit down at one of these CEO roundtables and come up with, like, an explicit, like, here's how to make our sector a cozy cartel. But that's the natural drift of this sort of policymaking process. If you get a lot of existing successful businessmen in a room and have them describe to you what their problems are and try to work out something in common, you're going to develop an agenda for cartelization. And you are going to very much exacerbate 
the sorts of issues that the economy actually seems to be suffering from, which is that it is, um, it's too hard for smaller companies to be founded and rise and, and compete. And there is too little pressure on existing companies to really invest on sort of poaching into each other's landscapes. And it's not just that Trump doesn't have an agenda to do that. He doesn't have a team that could possibly lead to the creation of an agenda like that. I mean, he will talk at rallies. Sometimes liberals want to say it's a gaffe, but I, I don't think it's a gaffe. I think it's a it's a field-tested message that works. It's like, I got a rich guy as my commerce secretary and another rich guy as my treasury secretary and Gary Cohn, my NEC chair, is he's super rich too because like you want you want rich guys handling your your kind of money stuff. And there's a I think a profound analytic error there. Like sometimes what you want is a bunch of pointy-headed technocrats uh, to kick the tires of the system and come up with a remedy. And and Trump does not does not believe in academic or bureaucratic expertise as a phenomenon that could possibly exist in in the universe. And so far has the only done modest things on the policy front. But the things he has done, particularly on telecom regulation, have, I think, been extraordinarily harmful in this regard. They've been to sort of shift power and leverage and influence back toward um, the telecom infrastructure-owning companies, which is, you know, a really pure example of a sector that is not dynamic or prone to dynamism. They own these cell phone towers, and they just kind of want to charge you a fee to use them, a fee that is much higher than the cost of operating them. And they want to consolidate. They don't want to compete. They want to uh, leverage that market power into sort of non-neutral treatments of, of internet traffic. And, you know, Trump and his FCC are going to let them do that, because if you get a roundtable of businessmen, like, they're going to tell you that's what they need to do. Yeah, and I think the other piece of this, the other thing that also contributes to these kinds of analytic errors, and I think this is really what you see in the Piketty, Saez, and Zuckman paper, is that the economy is working differently than it used to. And we are very used to looking at a certain set of indicators and drawing a macro view out of those indicators. So what is happening to growth? What is happening to jobs? What is happening to the Dow Jones? Mm -hmm. Uh, more than about half of the country has zero dollars invested in the market. Um, if the market is going well, it says nothing about half of the country. Now, it would tell you that corporations are doing reasonably well, and, and that's a good thing to care about, except that corporations doing well does not appear to be going downward to half of the country, right? They're not sharing that wealth. So they're not getting the gains of the stock market. They're also not getting the gains that the corporations, that the stock market is measuring um, uh, are, 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 are locking in. So I think that one other piece of this is that we do need to think about what are we tracking in the economy and, and, and what are we watching for? I mean, one that you could look at is median wages, and I think that's a valuable one to look at. And, and I do think there's some uh, there's some real evidence that's going up, although we'll see how long that, that, that goes for. But just in a generalized sense, we have a real issue right now with distribution. And I think it is increasingly clear that you can have a, a re, what looks like a strong economy but the gains are so unequally shared that it actually isn't truly a strong economy. Something that is a, a nice little line in the, the inequality paper we've got is that they, they write, they I think they make this comparison well, and it 
I wouldn't go too far with it, but but I think it's worth noting. They write that in 1980, uh, folks in the top 1% earned 27 times more than the bottom 50%. Today, they earn 81 times more. So the top 1% earns 81 times what people in the bottom 50% earn on average. This ratio of 1 to 81, they note, is similar to the gap between the average income in the U.S. and the average income in the world's poorest countries, among them the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Central African Republic, and Burundi. So when you're thinking about how big the gap in America is, now obviously someone in the bottom 50% of America is way better off than someone in the Central African Republic. But when you're thinking about how large the gap is between people at the top and people not just at the bottom, but like just average folks from the bottom half of the distribution, you're dealing with a um, gap that is unbelievably enormous, much, 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 much bigger than it used to be. And so when you're looking at that and when you're looking at an economy where the top 50%, the top 20% seem actually able to capture this much of the gains, you can have an economy that looks healthy and there's a whole other country at the bottom half of that economy um, that is getting nothing out of it. And so I do think that even outside of the context of Trump and everything you say about who he's listening to, I think is spot on. There's also this issue of we are very attuned to economic numbers that are not really teaching us how much anymore. And I would also say, I mean, this is something that's been kicked around a lot, but there's a a notion that is out there that that David Brooks put forward in a weird column about sandwiches, um, and that that Richard Reeds has put forward in a book that is less silly uh, called called Dream Hoarders, and this is very much the sort of politics of Donald Trump, and it's focused on emphasizing the gap in lifestyles and economic outcomes between I would say people around the 90th percentile, sort of elite professionals with what you would consider fancy jobs and sort of median working class people. That is a real gap. Um, the the gap in how people live and in material living standards is, is large and significant. It's a gap that has grown somewhat. But one thing that the Piketty-Zuckman charts really show is that this is not explained very much about the macro economy. If you look at people in the 90th to 95th percentile or so, they have continued to do similarly well in the post-1980 situation as they had done previously. Their incomes have grown a little bit more slowly than they had grown in the past. Uh, It's for people in the bottom 90%, things have grown much, much more slowly. And for people in the top two, but really 0.1% incomes have skyrocketed. And it's a it's a real bait and switch, I think, to try to get people to see the meaningful, significant divide in the country as being between the people who, I don't know what, you know, are, are buying um, organic bok choy at the farmer's market and, and the median American. It's true that that gap has grown over time, but it's grown a tiny amount compared to the gap between the people who are rich enough to own tons and tons of stock and to make a living off of ownership of capital. That's what has really sort of accelerated. And that's why you should be careful when looking at these kind of stock market indicators for things. That There's a number called um, Tobin's Q, and that's like the ratio of what stocks are worth to what the kind of stuff that companies are made up of is worth. And that number has gone up uh, a lot over the past 35 years, which is to say that just 
owning companies has become more lucrative rather than companies have generated lots and lots of additional equipment and, and value for people. And it's it's extremely insidious and I think has come to be a little bit hidden because the number of truly wealthy people is actually sufficiently small that they are not socially present in most people's lives in any kind of meaningful way. I think a typical person living in a normal suburb of a medium-sized American city is going to roughly never encounter a member of the top 0.1%. And you're going to have in your head that, like, the richest guy you meet, like, the dentist, is, like— a rich guy, and he is. I mean, there's there's a big difference between making forty grand a year and making two hundred thirty grand a year or something. But what you're seeing in these charts is that the gap between affluent professionals and like truly rich business owners has just exploded in a completely insane way that I have not, you know, essentially Donald Trump is not going to address it. But I don't think um, the Obama administration really talked about that kind of inequality in a in a persuasive or, or meaningful way. But you know it would be persuasive and meaningful. Uh, your recommendation for this podcast? Yeah. To your friends. And to your the family, internet. Everyone you know. Um, no, you should. You should rate The Weeds. You should recommend it to your friends. You should check out, uh, I think you're interesting, Tom Vanderwerf's excellent pop culture podcast, Worldly, uh, from our, our foreign team. I, I listened to their episode about the Philippines, learned a ton about their kind of wacky, but Turns out more horrifying than I'd realized uh, leader over there. And uh, you should come back on Friday for another exciting episode of The Weeds. You and Sarah, dude. You do these end podcast recommendations and you always forget one. I I don't forget. (laughs) All right. Well, don't listen to my podcast, but you should come back to The Weeds. Awesome. See you in a couple days. Bye.